welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, with the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense out of media reports about the latest research into the causes and treatments of mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first. Without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, educating the general public about mental illness and reducing the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis. Welcome back to the show. This is the Wednesday, July 20th. Sorry, July 30th edition of Psychiatry Today. Let's orient ourselves to date, shall we? Now, starting out tonight's show, maybe this is what I'm choking on. This is a very, very difficult story to report about indeed. How about a colleague of mine having to defend himself and others around him from a homicidal patient and engage this person in gunplay. That's right. This happened in a town called Darby, Pennsylvania. Authorities hope to learn why this past Friday, a psychiatric patient allegedly killed a caseworker at a hospital complex outside Philadelphia and whether a psychiatrist who shot the patient with his own gun wounding him had feared the man previously. The psychiatrist, Dr. Lee Silverman, was grazed in the temple during the gunfight in his office last Thursday afternoon with patient Richard Plotz. And the uh, statement comes from Delaware County District Attorney Jack Whalen, who said there were some issues between the doctor and patient, but whether or not he actually feared the patient is unclear. Now, this patient named Plotz, uh, he's 49 years old, of Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. He was hospitalized in critical condition. He was expected to be arraigned on murder charges at his hospital bedside in Philadelphia. The slain caseworker, 53-year-old Teresa Hunt of Philadelphia, had accompanied Plotz to the Psychiatric Crisis Center at Mercy Fitzgerald Hospital in Darby, just southwest of Philadelphia. Now, uh, the DA said when the caseworker was shot, Dr. Silverman crouched down behind his desk to avoid himself being shot. He was able to reach for his weapon and realizing it was a life or death situation, was able to engage the defendant in the exchange of gunfire. The struggle then spilled out into the hallway where another doctor and caseworker jumped in to help Silverman, rather courageous of them, they were unarmed. They secured Plotz's weapon. Now, police in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, were aware of at least three mental health commitments involving Plotz. Once after he cut his wrists and once when he threatened suicide, But they said such stays in the hospital can be just one to three days, and that's true. Plotz also had at least four gun arrests, along with assault and drug charges, and he has been barred from at least one residential shelter 
because of his violent history. <clears throat> the caseworkers and the doctors and the catchment centers, they know who violent individuals are because they're frequent flyers. And the system is not geared toward keeping these people housed somewhere until they start to be better. So you put whole communities at risk. That, according to Upper Darby Police Superintendent Michael Chitwood. And this gets at the root of what we've been talking about recently with the spate of mass shootings by mentally ill people. The DA and police superintendent are convinced that Dr. Silverman's actions saved lives. This man had much more ammunition with him, and it's their contention that if Dr. Silverman had not shot him, then he would have taken many, many more lives than that one of his caseworker. Now, Plotz may have been angry with Silverman over his treatment plan. Colleagues heard arguing during the appointment and saw Plotz aiming a gun at Dr. Silverman when they peeked inside the door. They quietly backed out and called 911. Uh, now, the DA didn't know if Dr. Silverman was carrying a gun specifically because he was afraid of this patient, Plotz. He was recuperating at his home when the story first was reported. His wife was quoted as saying he didn't want to discuss the shooting, and she declined to comment. Hospital policy bars anyone except on-duty law enforcement officials from carrying weapons on campus, according to a Mercy Health System spokeswoman. And she otherwise declined to discuss the reports that Dr. Silverman was armed at work. So there's another angle to this story. Okay, so why was Dr. Silverman carrying a weapon? Was it because he was afraid of this particular patient? Was it because, in general, he has received threats to himself or his staff from patients over the years? Uh, if you work in a hospital system, a municipal hospital system especially, then you're going to be referred patients from the community who may have uh, violent criminal records, such as this man. And as the police superintendent said, despite the multiple hospitalizations and arrest record this man had, there's only so much that can be done in the system to uh, either involuntarily commit or uh, jail someone for a certain amount of time before inevitably they're going to be released into the community. And then again, there's the whole issue. Okay, if he's had involuntary commitments, how was he able to obtain a firearm? Well, all right, so maybe the involuntary commitments would have excluded him from uh, obtaining a firearm legally, but of course we all know that would not stop him from obtaining one illegally. <clears throat> now, Hospital spokesperson did say that they remain focused on working with the Delaware County Police Department to understand fully the details of the event. The uh, police chief was quoted as saying, without a doubt, I believe the doctor saved lives. Without that firearm, the patient could have went out in the hallway and just walked down the offices that is killing people until he ran out of ammunition. Both guns were recovered from the scene. 
The exchange of gunfire occurred on the third floor of the Wellness Center at Mercy Fitzgerald, a 204-bed community teaching hospital. There are no surveillance cameras in the doctor's office or the waiting area, waiting area outside, rather, and no metal detectors at the entrance. Now, <clears throat> the story quotes a neighbor at Plotz's last known address, an apartment complex in Upper Darby. She saw a caseworker move him out of the building a year ago, and as he was being taken away, he said, you haven't heard the last of me. So here again, we have another case where a mentally ill person who has been committed against his will, who has been known to the police, committed violence and mayhem. And uh, I agree with all law enforcement authorities who credit Dr. Lee Silverman with saving lives by bravely taking his own firearm with him uh, against the stated policies of his place of employment and acting out to save not just himself but many, many other lives that day. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of issues uh, surrounding this incident. You know, why was the doctor uh, violating hospital policy by being armed? What prompted him to take that action and so on? Uh, But again, this is yet another example of how there is not proper balance between Second Amendment rights and known risk factors for violently ill, uh, violent and mentally ill people acting out to commit murder, such that the general public is not safe. And uh, certainly, I'm sure this gives pause to all my colleagues all over the country who work in similar situations to that of Dr. Silverman. And what would they do in that situation? You know, would they consider arming themselves? Have they already done so? And what does this incident do for their attitude about the possibility of arming themselves? And, you know, how does that sit with the oath we all take to help people to preserve and save life? When we're faced with a life-and-death decision, do we take lethal action against someone, possibly taking their life, for the sake of saving our own life for others? It's a position I don't think anyone wants to be in. Certainly, severely doubt Dr. Silverman wanted to be in that position, uh, even though he prepared himself for it. Well, again... um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more to follow on this story. I'll keep you aware of uh, all developments that follow from this issue. And I hate to keep talking about it, but, you know, this is a mental health news-related program. And so when there are uh, a cessation of mentally ill people committing violent crimes that wind up in the major media, I guess that's when I'll stop talking about it. Believe me, I'll be... Happy not to, uh, but you know certainly uh, this is uh, you know quite a unique circumstance. Uh, a psychiatrist being in the position of having to use lethal force to stop a patient who would have otherwise gone on a massive killing spree, had already taken one life. 
And uh, <clears throat> certainly, uh, you're not going to see law enforcement necessarily take any action against him. It remains to be seen what will happen to Dr. Silverman in terms of his hospital privileges. Uh, will any uh, Pennsylvania licensing authority take any action against him? Uh, will he take a leave of absence from his practice? Uh, he's, he also had some uh, minor gunshot wounds to recover from. You know, lots uh, more, I'm sure, is going to follow from this. All right, well, we'll move on after the first commercial break to other less disturbing mental health-related news. I'll assure you that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, they provide better quality care. They believe that excellent medical care is a right and not a privilege. They are concerned that the current economy has forced people to sacrifice their health. They have therefore reduced their prices to make it more affordable. They will continue to provide state-of-the-art care. They continue to believe that patient care counts above all else. Peachtree ENT Center, concierge medicine without the concierge price. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment or for more information. They are located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest, Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to the Doctor's Lounge where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on the show, this is a veterans or military mental health story, and it sort of indicates a broader mental health-related issue. An Ohio veteran is fighting to serve to uh, fighting to keep rather his therapy ducks. That's right, therapy ducks, not therapy dog, therapy ducks. After serving in Iraq, Army National Guard veteran Darren Welker came home to West Lafayette, Ohio with a back injury and with post-traumatic stress disorder. He underwent surgery in 2012, but the physical therapy recommended by his surgeon was not approved by the VA. Hmm. A veteran not getting necessary treatment from the VA. That's certainly a current topic, isn't it? Willing to give anything a try, Welker turned to ducks for both physical and mental therapy, and to his surprise, it worked. 
Today, Welker owns 14 ducks and has been cited with a minor misdemeanor. In 2010, a law was adopted that states no chickens, turkeys, ducks, or live poultry can live in his village. Welker, who has a letter from the Mental Health Department of the United States Department of Veteran Affairs, saying he needs to keep the ducks, says it's hard to think about not having them. He says the ducks help him both physically and mentally. He enjoys feeding them, spending time with them, and watching as the ducks interact. Welker is hopeful that the law can be changed, like it was last year for a woman with spina bifida who owns a therapy pot-bellied pig. Welker's hearing was set for last week. Didn't see any follow-up stories on it. Uh, He said he was going to share with the court just how much the ducks have helped him with his physical and emotional well-being. Well, I don't know how that court battle turned out. Hopefully he won. Um, Hopefully the judge did not hand down a foul decision. I'm sorry. I know that was awful. I know that was terrible, but I couldn't resist. Um, But the thing is, you know, this man served in Iraq and had physical and mental injuries as a result of his service. And, you know, do we not owe him anything but to be able to have him keep ducks? Now, okay, I can see if the ducks are creating a mess or a nuisance or interfering with the quality of life of his neighbors. That's one thing. But, you know, I would hope they could see their way to making an exception, uh, especially the mental health department of the Veterans Affairs Department, saying that this is a legitimate need for him to have these animals. Now, I have talked on the show in the past briefly about the use of therapy pets and how sometimes there are questions about whether getting permission to use pets for therapy is being applied too loosely and whether the practice is being abused. That can be argued and debated in many cases, including possibly this one. But coincidentally to uh, deciding to bring you this story, I found an article that talks about seven ways that pets can make you healthier. And so... I thought this broader issue is certainly of mental health-related interest. So let's go over the seven ways. Now, keep your health out of the doghouse. Owning a dog or a cat is a great deal of responsibility, but it turns out that putting in that work is well worth it. A pet not only adds companionship to your life, but also years by reducing your risk of a variety of conditions and improving your overall health. And to use the example of our Iraq veteran, no doubt caring for all these animals and how physically active it uh, requires him to be uh, is, is helping him, even though he couldn't get the approved physical therapy he was supposed to have. And the second way that pets make you healthier, beat depression. The unconditional love your pet gives can do wonders for your mood. 
One of the major signs of depression is the feeling that life has no value. When you're responsible for another living thing, or in our soldiers' case, 14 of them, it gives you that value, which is key to breaking out of and preventing depression. And we know from many, many research studies that veterans with PTSD are also very much prone to depression. Another way pets make you healthier, help your heart. Being a pet owner can be a benefit for your heart health. And this according to a paper published just last year by the American Heart Association. The study found owning a pet may reduce your risk for heart disease, not only because dog owners take them on walks, but because sitting and stroking pets lowers blood pressure and pulse rate. Research has even shown that pet owners have lower cholesterol levels as well. Okay, another way pets can make you healthier, get more exercise. You can't live a healthy life without exercise. And pet owners, especially those with dogs, report exercising more frequently and living overall healthier lives. Dog owners tend to take their pets for walks which is an underrated exercise that can really cut your risk for diseases like diabetes and help you control your weight. Several years ago, I talked about a story on this show in which, or actually a research study, in which the only intervention to help the subjects lose weight was they started walking the dog every day. There was no change in diet. There was no other change in their physical activity level whatsoever. And every single subject lost weight, even those who borrowed someone else's dog. So I'm not sure our veteran here is walking his ducks. In fact, he talks about watching them interact. But nonetheless, uh, if he's caring for them, we can assume that he has to be physically active. And way number five that uh, pets can make you healthier, reduce your stress. Many people see having a pet as stressful, which it can be, but pets can also be one of the best stress relievers available. When you have a pet, again, being a source of unconditional love and companionship, having that around helps you feel more relaxed. And no doubt our veteran has a a feeling of well-being and a sense of purpose for caring for these animals and seeing that they stay with him, allowing him to care for them must give him a strong sense of purpose. Now, a somewhat more obscure health benefit, but one that nonetheless has been shown through research, is to avoid allergies. It may sound counterintuitive, but having a cat or dog may help you deal with those animal allergies. Since they're exposed to the allergens growing up, kids with pets are less likely to have animal allergies when they grow up. There's also studies showing that kids raised around pets have less incidence of asthma. Must help do something to develop the immune system. Socializing more is another health benefit of having pets. Need that push to get out and meet people? Pets and dogs especially are perfect for that. Dogs are great at helping people break out of their shell. There is more socialization and much happier people when dogs are around. And again, when you're out walking a dog, you're likely as not to run into other dog owners. 
This is not likely to be the case for our veteran with ducks, uh, but perhaps they do attract interest, people who hear about them and maybe want to see them and visit them. We can only hope for his sake that it would help with his socialization. And finally, having pets help you live longer. When you put all the health benefits together, that's what it all adds up to. It not only improves your quality of life, but how long you can expect to live as well. Pets give you a sense of well-being, and when you have that feeling, your body will be healthier, and you will keep your vital signs in the normal range, and certainly the physical activity uh, and being heart healthier from said physical activity will improve the quality of life. Being more social has also been shown to improve longevity. So there you have it, many, many health benefits of having pets. And, you know, I really hope for the sake of that Iraq vet that he was able to keep those ducks. Next up on tonight's show, uh, a study showing how stress hormones promote the brain's building up of negative memories. When a person experiences a devastating loss or tragic event, why does every detail seem burned into memory, whereas a host of positive experiences simply fade away? Isn't this a common lament that mothers have? Oh, why do you always bring up the worst things that happen during your childhood? What about all the happy times? What about all the great things that we did Why do you only remember the bad things? Well, it has to do with brain physiology. And it's a bit more complicated than scientists originally thought, according to a study recently published in the journal Neuroscience. When people experience a traumatic event, the body releases two major stress hormones, norepinephrine and cortisol. Norepinephrine boosts heart rate, and controls the fight-or-flight response. It's also known as noradrenaline, and it's commonly rising when individuals feel threatened or experience highly emotional reactions. It is chemically similar to the hormone epinephrine, or another name for it, adrenaline. In the brain, norepinephrine in turn functions as a powerful neurotransmitter or chemical messenger that can enhance memory. Research on cortisol has demonstrated that this stress hormone can also have a powerful effect on strengthening memories. However, studies in humans up until now have been inconclusive, with cortisol sometimes enhancing memory while at other times having no effect. A key factor in whether cortisol has an effect on strengthening certain memories may rely on activation of norepinephrine during learning. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here, and we'll continue our discussion of stress hormones and negative memories when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that chronic nasal congestion, a decreased sense of smell, and asthma can be signs of allergies? Allergies are caused when the body is exposed to things you breathe in or eat that the body does not like. The body's immune system reacts and attacks it 
what it perceives to be the enemy, even if it causes no harm, like pet dander or dust. This leads to swelling. In the nose, this causes congestion. In the bowel, it causes stomach bloating and diarrhea. In the lung, it causes shortness of breath and wheezing. And in the skin, it causes hives and itching. The first line of defense against allergy is avoidance. Dust proofing, washing pets, and keeping them out of the bedroom can help with environmental causes. For food allergies, keeping a diary of things eaten and reaction to them is helpful. Allergy testing is less time-consuming and is a safe and effective way to identify allergies. For a complete evaluation, you should see your allergy specialist. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. We're talking about research showing how the stress hormones that are elevated in our bodies when we experience negative and traumatic events can solidify those memories. Now, in this study, researchers at the University of California, Irvine, showed that human memory enhancement functions in a particular manner. They did the laboratory study on 39 women who viewed 144 images from the International Affective Picture Set. Now, this is a set of standardized pictures used by researchers who want to elicit a range of particular responses from the subjects, from neutral to strong emotional reactions when subjects look at them. So what they did was they gave each of the study subjects either a dose of hydrocortisone to simulate stress or a placebo just prior to viewing this set of pictures. Each woman then rated her feelings at the time she was viewing the image, in addition to giving saliva samples before and after. Of course, the saliva samples are to measure levels of stress hormones. Now, a week later, an unexpected recall test was administered to the subjects. And what they found were that the negative experiences or the negative emotions elicited by the pictures were more readily remembered when the event is traumatic enough to release cortisol after the event. Again, cortisol being the stress hormone, and only if norepinephrine is released during or shortly after the event. So in other words, it's this combination of the release of these two stress hormones that makes negative memories stronger. So the study shows a key component to better understanding how traumatic memories may be strengthened, at least in women. There were no male subjects in the study. It suggests 
that if somehow norepinephrine levels can be lowered immediately following a traumatic event, that might be able to prevent the memory-enhancing mechanism from occurring, regardless of how much cortisol is released following the traumatic event. Because again, it was not just the cortisol, it was the cortisol and the norepinephrine. Now, further studies, of course, are needed to explore to what extent the relationship between these two stress hormones differs depending on male versus female. But it's very important regardless because women are twice as likely to develop disorders from stress and trauma that affect memory, especially post-traumatic stress disorder. But of course, men are well known to develop this and indeed, Post-traumatic stress disorder has been studied extensively in men because of combat trauma. In the meantime, the findings are an important first step toward a better understanding of the mechanisms that underlie traumatic disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder. And theoretically, this could lead to a way to treat trauma victims to decrease the chances that they would go on to suffer post-traumatic stress. And yes, uh, much as my fanciful musings before when I first introduced the article provide an explanation of why we have such stronger recall of negative events than positive. All right, next up on tonight's show, Are those of you who are very into social media sometimes feeling stressed or depressed? Do you remember a couple of years ago there were actually articles about something called Facebook depression? Well, I came across this article that came out a couple of weeks ago about how social media uh, may indicate narcissism and or empathy among users. The rise of social networking sites, mostly Facebook but others, has led to changes in the nature in the nature of our social relationships as well as how we present and perceive ourselves. Although social media like Facebook allow us to connect, are we becoming more self-centered and less empathic towards other human beings? A new study investigated the relationship among adult Facebook users between ages 18 and 50 and found that some Facebook features are linked to selfishness and some Facebook activities may encourage empathy. The research team conducted a study which was recently published in a journal called Social Networking of more than 400 individuals and asked them a range of questions about their Facebook behaviors, including how many hours per day they spent on Facebook and the number of times they updated their status. They also asked participants to rate their profile picture. Were they physically attractive, cool, glamorous, and fashionable? Participants in the study, most of them single, used Facebook an average of two hours per day. Really? You have enough time to do that? And they had approximately 500 friends for both males and females. The majority, almost 90%, 
reported they were included in their profile photo. To assess how narcissistic they were, participants were given a standard narcissism questionnaire where they had to choose between statements that best described them. For example, they had to decide between this statement, I like to be the center of attention, or this statement, I prefer to blend in with the crowd. Now, that's not the whole questionnaire. That's just one example. Now, the study revealed only one Facebook behavior accurately predicted narcissism levels, and that was user profile picture ratings. For males, only their profile picture ratings were a predictor of narcissism. For the females, both their profile picture ratings and their status update frequency predicted their narcissism. Narcissistic individuals have an exaggerated view of their attractiveness and want to share it with the world. The profile picture is the most tangible aspect of a user's online self-presentation, making it a touchstone for narcissists seeking to draw attention to themselves. Every narcissist needs a reflecting pool. Just as Narcissus gazed into the pool to admire his beauty, social networking sites like Facebook have become our modern-day pool. The study also showed that there were differences between the genders. While men were more narcissistic according to the test, narcissistic women were more likely to rate their profile pictures as more physically attractive, glamorous, and cool. Females also changed their profile picture more than the males, updating their photo once every two months, compared to once every three months for males. This may mean that narcissistic women are more likely to use Facebook as a reflecting pool than narcissistic males. However, many other Facebook activities weren't linked to narcissism. The number of friends they had, even how often they posted photos of themselves, weren't related to narcissistic tendencies. This pattern suggests that while Facebook may be a tool for narcissists, it's more than just a reflecting pool. Also, the findings indicated that some Facebook activities, such as chatting, were linked to aspects of empathic concern such as higher levels of perspective-taking, the ability to place oneself in another's situation. This was in males. Females scored much lower. The photo feature in Facebook was also linked to the better ability to place themselves, both males and females, in fictional situations. For females only, viewing videos was associated with the extent to which they could identify with someone's distress. The study's conclusion found that some Facebook activities, such as chatting, encourage some aspects of empathy. Although the photo feature was linked to narcissism, the overall pattern of findings suggests that social media is primarily a tool for staying connected rather than for self-promotion. Well, there you have it. Maybe that will think, or maybe that will make you uh, think about how you use your uh, social media and how often you change your picture, and uh, 
engage in uh, introspective as uh, opposed to self-promoting uh, activities. Next up on tonight's show, here's another perfect illustration of how stress affects the body. Are you losing sleep over your divorce? Your blood pressure could suffer. Those who experience persistent sleep problems after a divorce stand to suffer from more than just dark circles under their eyes. They might also be at risk for potentially harmful increases in blood pressure, according to a new study. A growing body of research links divorce to significant negative health effects and even early death, yet few studies have looked at why that connection may exist. Divorce-related sleep troubles may be partly to blame, suggest the authors of a new study to be published in a forthcoming issue of the journal Health Psychology. In the initial few months after a separation, sleep problems are probably pretty normal, and this is an adjustment process that people can typically cope with well. But sleep problems that persist for an extended period may mean something different. It may mean that people are potentially becoming depressed, that they're struggling with getting their life going again, and it is these people that are particularly susceptible to health problems. The study looked at 138 people who had physically separated from or divorced their partner about 16 weeks before the start of the study. Participants were asked to report on their quality of sleep during three lab visits over a seven-and-a-half-month period, which uses a particular rating scale taking into consideration sleep issues from tossing and turning to snoring, trouble falling and staying asleep, and they measured patients' blood pressures at all three lab visits. All right, I think what we'll do is we'll save what the researchers found when we come back after this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Come on, follow Sniffles to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. 
Followsniffles.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. We're talking about a study showing that if you were recently divorced and you're having trouble sleeping, that combination can lead to high blood pressure. Now, the researchers didn't see a relationship between sleep problems and blood pressure levels at the first visit. Remember, this was three visits spread out over seven and a half months. But they observed a delayed effect with participants showing increased systolic and diastolic blood pressure in the later visits as a function of earlier sleep problems. Uh, Now, systolic is the top blood pressure number, the higher one. That measures the pressure in the arteries when the heart beats. The diastolic is the bottom lower number, and that measures the pressure in the arteries between heartbeats. Normal blood pressure is about 120 over 80, so it's 120 systolic over 80 diastolic. Now, also, the researchers found that the longer people's sleep problems persisted after their divorce, the more likely those problems were to have an adverse effect on blood pressure. So it's a cumulative health effect of the sleep problems. What they found is if you're having sleep problems up to about 10 weeks after your separation, they don't appear to be associated with your future increase in blood pressure. But after 10 or so weeks, after some sustained period of time, there seems to be this cumulative adverse effect on blood pressure. Now, this is especially something to be taken seriously if people have high blood pressure to begin with. Each standard deviation increase in sleep complaints correspond to a roughly six-unit increase in subsequent systolic blood pressure. So if you're starting at high average or borderline high blood pressure, this is certainly uh, a bump up that could be harmful. Now, people who have persistent difficulty sleeping after a divorce, what's the take-home message? Address the issue. Seek out counseling. Cognitive behavioral therapy actually is proven to be more consistently effective in treating insomnia than sleeping pills and certainly far less risky. Making daily schedule adjustments that promote healthy sleep, finding new ways to relax at bedtime. Uh, We know regular exercise helps reduce stress and promotes better sleep. We're all going to go through something stressful in our lives, whether it's divorce or something else. This shows how important it is to value our sleep and to take care of ourselves. And looking at this research and the results they found, Maybe think about sleep apnea. If someone has prolonged bout of poor, uh, restless, unrestorative sleep due to multiple awakenings because of sleep apnea, then we know that raises blood pressure and puts them at higher risk of heart attack and stroke. So too, apparently, does impaired sleep in the wake of a severely stressful life event such as a divorce. Now... Next up on tonight's show, a little bit about the science of forgiveness, the power of making amends. It's well known that when a person takes steps to make amends for a wrongdoing, the victim 
is more inclined to forgive and forget. However, exactly why that happens is less obvious and poorly understood. In a recent study, scientists made substantial progress in explaining the psychological processes that make forgiveness happen. Their findings show that peacemaking efforts such as apologies, offers of compensation, and owning up to one's responsibility increase forgiveness and reduce anger by making the aggressor seem more valuable as a relationship partner and by causing the victim to feel less at risk of getting hurt again by the transgressor. All of the things that people are motivated to do when they have harmed someone they care about really do appear to be effective at helping victims forgive and get over their anger. People often think that evolution designed people to be mean, violent, and selfish. But humans need relationship partners, so natural selection probably also gave us tools to help us restore important relationships after they've been damaged by conflict. Now, for this study, 356 young men and women completed questionnaires as well as an eight-minute interview about the transgression they had experienced and their feelings toward the person who had harmed them. The participants also spent four minutes preparing a short first-person speech about the transgression and the transgressor. They then delivered the speech into a video camera as if the camera were the person who had harmed them. Finally, the participants completed a 21-day online survey to measure forgiveness. To describe their feelings about their aggressors, respondents chose from a list of statements such as, I'm trying to keep as much distance between us as possible, or I'm going to get even, or he or she wants our conflict to be over, or he or she does not intend to wrong me again, among others. The findings show that the extent to which a, transgress- a transgressor offered conciliatory gestures to their victims was directly proportional to the extent to which those victims forgave over time. Conciliatory gestures also appeared to change the victim's perceptions about the relationship and the aggressor. One basic scientific implication of the results is that humans have a psychology for conflict resolution that is very much analogous to the psychology that other non-human group-living animals have for restoring valuable relationships. The study, called Conciliatory Gestures Promote Human Forgiveness and Reduce Anger, is published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The next step for the researchers is to conduct more experimental work. If the apparent associations of conciliatory gestures with more forgiveness and perceived relationship value, as well as with less anger and perceived exploitation risk, really are cause and effect relationships, it should be possible to make people more forgiving in the laboratory through apologies, offers of compensation, 
and other conciliatory gestures. The researchers would also like to see if it's possible to build cultures of forgiveness by experimentally building up relationship value and reducing the risks of interactions with anonymous strangers who are interacting with groups. A noble effort, certainly, but I think it's going to take quite a bit to take these methods from the social psychology laboratory into the real world of conflict resolution. And now another potential method for those people who seek alternative methods for treating depression besides medication. How about low-strength brain stimulation? No, I'm not talking about implants, not talking about other brain stimulation treatments like electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. I'm not talking about transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS, which are often effective for depression. But like antidepressant medications, they're typically having a delayed onset. The patient might need ECT for several weeks before they feel better. We're talking about low-field magnetic stimulation, LFMS, and it has mood-elevating effects that may be more rapid. Now, it uses magnetic fields that are a fraction of the strength, but at a higher frequency than the electromagnetic fields used in either TMS or ECT. The potential for this was discovered accidentally. While researchers were conducting an imaging study in healthy volunteers, So then they identified the imaging parameters that seemed to cause the antidepressant effect. And then they constructed constructed this portable low-field magnetic stimulation device, and it delivers a low-strength, high-frequency electromagnetic field waveform to the brain. And then they studied it in depressed patients. And this is published in the current issue of the journal Biological Psychiatry. 63 depressed patients were randomized to receive either a single 20-minute treatment of real versus fake LFMS, and the fake treatment was where the electromagnetic fields were not active. And neither the patients nor the researchers knew who got the real treatment. But they found an immediate and substantial improvement in mood in the patients who got the real LFMS, compared to those who got the fake treatment, and there were no reported side effects. So this suggests that this may have the potential to provide immediate relief of depressed mood, perhaps even in emergency situations, and they claim it confirms the success of the device's design. The idea that weak electrical stimulation of the brain could produce beneficial effects on depression symptoms is somewhat surprising, because up until now it was thought that it took a strong enough electric field to create a seizure, quite strong indeed. But this data make a compelling case that this safe approach deserves further study. Additional research is already underway to find the best parameters for LFMS use in the clinical treatment of depression. But, of course, much more extensive research will also be necessary to evaluate the the effects of multiple compared to single treatments, and most importantly, how long the antidepressant effects last following treatment. It's not enough to get someone feeling better after a brief period of treatment. 
It's how do you keep someone feeling well? How do you keep the depression away, keep it from coming back? And while an initial brief course of treatment didn't cause side effects, what will happen over a longer period of time? Now, if this thing pans out, I can't tell you what a huge development that would be. Um, ECT is expensive to administer, and potential side effects are very, very severe. You're um, artificially inducing seizures. Uh, memory is often permanently impaired. Um, so, and you're putting someone under general anesthesia. RTMS is much more benign, but the results are inconsistent, and the equipment is uh, very expensive, and it's often not covered by insurance. So, as far as low field magnetic stimulation, I will certainly keep you up to date on developments. And that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you. And I hope that till we get together next time, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.